Now, we mentioned last week in Genesis 42 how we were seeing how God's going to bring a reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. If you remember from the book of Genesis, from way back in chapter 37, Joseph being the favored son was given that coat of many colors, his brothers being jealous, at first thought about killing him and decided instead to sell him into slavery but make his father think that he was dead. And so they sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, ends up being purchased uh, by Potiphar, who's a high official in Pharaoh's court. And God sovereignly uses this to bring Joseph to a place where he gets out of Pharaoh's, or he gets out of prison, at least in the sense of he's not in the dungeon area. He becomes a part of Pharaoh's court, really becomes, in a sense, the prime minister of Egypt. And God had given these dreams to Pharaoh about a, a great famine that was going to happen. And God uses Joseph to not only interpret the dreams, but to give him the wisdom about what needs to be done to make sure that they can survive that famine. And so we see in Joseph's life this great picture of God's sovereignty, of God working through people. But we also are in a situation where we see Joseph as a man. Here he is now, 20 years have passed since he's been sold into slavery. And we saw last week he, he sees his brothers for the first time as they go to Egypt to get, to get some grain, to get some food, because they are in the midst of this famine. He sees his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And we talked about here, here as he sees them that all these emotions are stirred up, and he's, he's recognizing that God's going to bring a reconciliation, but it's going to be a long road to bring that reconciliation. And really chapters 42 all the way through chapter 45 are really one story about how God's going to bring this reconciliation and how God's going to show Joseph's father, Jacob, who we also know as Israel, and Joseph's brothers. He's going to show them about what he was doing to save them, about how he was using even their betrayal of Joseph to bring salvation to them, to bring deliverance and safety to them. So we look in chapter 42, and we know the end of the story. We know, or chapter 43, excuse me, we know the end of the story. We know that they're going to be reconciled. Joseph and his brothers are going to be reconciled. And yet we see there's a process that has to take place. What we're going to see is really what has to happen before God brings them into reconciliation is God really wants to use a situation to do something in them, not just with them. It's not just that God wants to make sure that that Joseph and his brothers are reconciled or that they live, they, they survive physically as the chosen people, the covenant people of God. It is that, but it's more than that. He wants to actually bring a change in them. He wants to change them from the inside out. This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what happens when hearts begin to change. What happens when God begins to change us from the inside out? What does that look like? So I'm going to give you three main things that you're going to pick up on as we go through this story. But let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 43. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up all the grain which they had bought for, brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. So you remember when Joseph's brothers came back to Egypt, uh, when they had went the first time, they didn't take their youngest brother Benjamin with him, who had been the full brother of Joseph. They didn't bring Benjamin with them because the, the, their father Jacob said no. So they go back to, to Egypt and their father says, you're staying here, you're not going back with, with Benjamin. I don't care what that man says, you're staying here, you're not taking Benjamin with you. 
And remember, they also left Simeon back there. One of their brothers kind of was left for collateral back in Egypt. But there's a long delay. We don't know exactly how long. Maybe it was six months. Maybe it was a year. We don't know. But there's this long delay when they're, they're, they've kind of eaten all the food that they have. And so now Jacob seems to be saying awkwardly, well, maybe you need to go back and buy us a little food. And so it says that Judah spoke to him saying, the man, and he's speaking of Joseph. Remember, he doesn't know it's Joseph. But he says, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So you have a situation here where the severity of the famine is forcing Jacob into a difficult situation. He's going to have to make a decision here. And so Jacob, or Israel says, verse 6, said to him, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known? He would have said, Bring your brother down. So then Judah said to his Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and, our, and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him and from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned for the second time. Now, what you have here is Judah sort of stepping up and saying, I'll take responsibility for the situation. And you can kind of sense his frustration, can't you? He's saying, look, we're not going to go unless we take Benjamin. And if you're so worried about this, fine, I'll take responsibility for this. It's kind of like, Dad, we're sick of your whining. We're sick of your favoritism. We're going to go deal with this thing because we're going to die. Our families are going to die. This is starvation here. It's a famine. So we need to go. Now, what's interesting about this is Judah was the one, if you remember way back in chapter 37, who was the one that said, stinking little brother Joseph, sell that guy into slavery. Let's get rid of him. Now, of course, he doesn't know the man he's going to go get food from in Egypt is Joseph. But you do still see him kind of changing here. You see where he's beginning to say, you know what, i got to take responsibility. I can't just let these people die. I can't let my family die. I don't care how messed up dad is in the head. i got to sort this out. And so, so what happens? Verse 11, So the, their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of your best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And so he basically is kind of preparing them as much as possible. So, okay, fine, if you've got to go back... Butter them up a bit. Give them, give them some nice things. Give them some nice gifts. Okay. And then he says in verse 13, Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And notice he says, And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now here's what you see going on. Jacob finally gets into the situation where he realizes, I have to surrender to God. I, you know, I don't want to lose my, I already lost my favorite son, Joseph. Remember, in his mind, Jacob thinks Joseph's dead. Israel thinks Joseph's dead. I've already lost my favorite son. Here's my new favorite son, Benjamin. 
And don't forget as well, the reason both these guys were his favorites was because the wife that he was in love with, that he worked seven years for, Rachel, uh, those were the two sons from him, uh, from her. And so he's thinking, I've already lost, this is precious to me. I don't want to lose him again, but I'm stuck. I have to do something, otherwise my whole family is going to die. And so he finally just gives up and he surrenders to God. And it's interesting how he talks about God here. It shows us something about what's going on in his heart, what, what he begins to realize. When he says God Almighty, that phrase God Almighty, it's this, it's this phrase El Shaddai. It's God the, the all-powerful one. And what's interesting about this phrase El Shaddai is that it, it can mean two things. There's actually biblical scholars are kind of divided about what it's pointing to. Some say that the word comes from a root idea of, of a mountaintop or, or of a place of strength, like a, a community would live on a mountain because it was, it was very easy to defend. It was a strong place to be. And so that it means El Shaddai or, or God of strength. Others say that it comes from a root word that means breast. It has to do with being nourished. It has to do with this idea that, that uh, a woman provides life for her child. And th- so this is the idea that he's God the provider, God who we're dependent upon to have provision from. And I, I think what we know about God, especially what we know about God looking at the person of Jesus, is we know that God is both all-powerful and totally the provider. And it's like it's, it's as if Jacob is kind of realizing here. He's kind of understanding. He's stuck in a rock in a hard place. He has to make a decision. He goes, okay, fine. What I have to do is i got to trust the character of God. In fact, we can see by his words when he says, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. In other words, if I lose my sons, I lose my sons. He's kind of, he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. And you know, in modern Christianity, and, and, and I might say religious television Christianity, what you have nowadays is this idea that what you have to believe is for something. The kind of faith that God honors is the faith that it's for something. I'm believing that this thing's going to come to pass. And so they would look at this and they would say, see, here's Jacob not having very much faith. Now don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to believe for something. Obviously, when we're praying, we're not just saying, all right, God, I'm just saying whatever happens, happens. That's praying to faith, not praying to a God who hears and can answer. But the faith that God really wants to develop in us, the faith that I think Jacob here is, is, is displaying is a faith that is in God's character. I'm going to trust what God is like. All right, you're El Shaddai. You're the all-powerful one. You're the all-sufficient provider. I've got to look to you. Whatever happens, happens. I gotta look to you. It's interesting as well that he says, and may, may this almighty God, may El Shaddai also give you mercy before the man. And the word for mercy there is this word for compassion. It's not the word we talked about last week that's kassad or this covenant word. It's this word compassion. It means just as we use it today. It's this idea that, you know, may he understand how painful or difficult your situation is and, and act accordingly. But it's, it's worded in such a way as if to say, may the God of compassion provoke this man to compassion. Again, he's trusting the character of God. And this is the first thing that we need to understand. This is the first thing that, that we need to expect God's going to do as he changes our hearts. If God is in the business of changing our hearts, the first thing he's going to do He's going to cause us to surrender to the mercy of Almighty God. He's going to make us say, okay, I've got to trust in the character of God. I've got I to trust in Him. Do you guys remember the story in John chapter 11 when Lazarus dies? 
it, it tells us that Lazarus, this man Lazarus, and his sisters Mary and Martha, that they were, they were loved by Jesus. So specifically, they were loved by Jesus in that chapter. This was a very close-knit family. They hosted Jesus often. They were very close to Jesus relationally. And so when, when Jesus is not near them and Lazarus dies, they're wondering when's he going to come, and they send word to him. And when he gets word that Lazarus is death, he delays on purpose. He, when he, when they, I'm sorry, when they hear that uh, Lazarus is sick, uh, Jesus delays on purpose. He knows Lazarus is sick, he delays on purpose, and waits till Lazarus is actually dead before he goes to see him. And so when he goes to see him, you guys know the story, right? Martha comes running out and says, Lord, where were you? If you were here, he would not have died. And, 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 and he's, uh, she's stressed out about it, understandably so. And Jesus says to her, listen, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So in other words, here's a crisis situation that Jesus has purposely avoided. He didn't come back when she was sick or when uh, Lazarus was sick. He waits till Lazarus is dead. Then when he comes back, his sister, who he cares for deeply, Jesus cares for this woman, Martha, deeply, is saying, Lord, where were you? And he almost seems almost flippantly says, he's going to rise again. And what's her response? The theologically correct answer. Yes, I, I know, I know. He, he'll be in heaven, you know, he'll be resurrected one day. I get it. Now, there's nothing wrong with her answer. She is correct. He will be raised on the last day. There's nothing wrong with that. But look what Jesus does. Listen, but Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's as if Jesus is saying to, to Martha, listen, I know you believe the revelation of Scripture, and good on you, you need to. I know you believe there's going to be a resurrection, and good on you, you need to know that. I know you believe my words, because earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus said he would do the resurrecting. And good on you for that. But do you trust me? You see, when God, listen, when God is working in us to change our hearts, one of the first things we transition to is seeing Christianity as an it and begin to see Christianity as a him. We recognize that God hasn't called us to an ideology. He's called us to a person. Jesus didn't say, listen, come, follow. This set of belief systems I have for you. Jesus didn't say, come, follow. This, these kind of moral practices that I give to you. He said, come, follow. Follow me. Which means nothing to us in the 21st century if Jesus isn't who he said he is, God incarnated, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and sent his Holy Spirit. But if he is who he said he is, it means everything. You see, Jacob was in a place where he had to learn to surrender to God. He knew the covenant of God. He knew what God wanted from him. It could have been why he was stressed out so much about losing Joseph and not wanting to lose Benjamin because he could have been assuming the Messiah, the chosen one who's going to bless the world, must be, the promise must be extended through Benjamin. He's my favorite. It must be through him. But we already know it's not going to be, is it? That could have been why he was so stressed out. He was trying to believe the covenant and it wasn't making sense to him. And what he needed to come to is a place where he says, well, do you believe God? A, a great pastor uh, I know once said, 
When you come against something you don't understand, you need to fall back on what you do understand. You see, what God wants us to do is know that He's the one we fall back to. He wants us to hide under the shelter of His wing. God wants us to know Him personally. He wants us to surrender ourselves to, Lord, okay, you've shown yourself to be this way. I've I got to believe you're this way. I've got to believe you're this way. Even though circumstances tell me otherwise. You are El Shaddai. You're the all-sufficient, all-powerful provider. You're the, you're the one whose compassions fail not. So if you're that compassionate, you can make this man be compassionate towards my sons. I've got to believe that. So then we pick it up in verse 15. It says, So the men, they took the present that, uh, and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their handbags, and arose and went down to uh, Egypt, and, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home, slaughter an animal, make it ready, and these men will dine with me at noon. And then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the man into Joseph's house. Now, you've got to understand, this is very unusually kind and generous behavior. A, a, a leader in Egypt, especially with a Hebrew, would never say, come to my house and have lunch. Never. They, just, they wouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's so kind, it's so generous that the men, well, they're suspicious. Verse 18. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time and we are brought in so that we may, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near the stewards of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of his house. In other words, they didn't even go in. And they said, oh sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, and our money in full weight. And so we brought it back in our hands, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We don't know where, we don't know, we do not know who put our money in our sacks. So what's going on here, guys, listen, is that Joseph is showing them we're going to see some sincere, gracious, behavior, but they're so freaked out, they won't even go into his house until they try to explain themselves to Joseph's steward. They don't even want to go into his house. And so they're freaking out about this. They're, they're afraid to enter in. Now, this reminds me of something. This is not, I, I want to kind of go off the text for something, and because and, it reminds me of something. It reminds me of kind of what happens with so many people who are unchurched, or what we might call de-churched part of a church before then they left. What happens is, they're so afraid of what the stewards of the house think, they don't want to enter in. And so either they think, they're just trying to make me their slaves. They want to make me give me all their money and make me do all this work. And oh, I don't want to, I want to avoid that. Or they think, oh no, they're going to know what I'm like and we're going to be exposed and they're good and I'm bad and I'm afraid of what the consequences will be. That's what it reminds me of. And this is why it's so important for us, number one, not to compromise the gospel, to speak the truth in love always, but number two, to not act like we are better or different than anybody else. We are sinners saved by grace. It's important that we recognize that because people have their fears as irrational as they are, we need to do whatever we can do to 
undermine those fears without compromising the gospel, without compromising the truth of what God says. Now, anyway, these guys are afraid. They didn't want to go in. And here's what the Joseph Steward says. It's amazing. Verse 20 through, 23, excuse me. It says, but he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Listen, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, now listen. I, I don't want you to miss what's happening here. This is Joseph Steward. He's Egyptian. As we'll see in a minute, Egyptians look at Hebrews as an abomination. This guy is speaking as if he believes in the God of Joseph. Now, some Bible scholars says that, uh, say that um, it's not so much that he believes, but he's just repeating the words that Joseph wanted him to say. I guess that could be. Uh, but to me, the way he talks about this, I, I can't imagine an Egyptian doing that, compromising their national sort of cultural faith just to appease a guy who happens to have some prophetic gift. No, I think God's done something pretty radical here. And what's really cool about this is that he's, he's basically saying, listen, you guys are afraid that you've got this good thing and it's some sort of a trap. Don't you know that this good gift came from the good hand of your God? And even the things that he says about the situation remind us of the goodness of God. He says, your God, notice, and the God of your Father. In other words, the God who made a covenant with your Father. You remember your Father? Now, these guys had to be thinking. I can totally see God the Spirit working through this because these guys would have had to been thinking. You know, Joseph's brothers would have had to been thinking to themselves, Dad, Dad's a flake. <laughs> but God's covenant to him is amazing. God's promise to him is amazing. That God's going to, as he promised great-grandpa Abraham, God's going to bring a blessing to the whole world through him. That's a pretty amazing covenant. God's goodness is seen in that covenant. The covenants that God makes with his people display his goodness. It's God pursuing man. That's what the covenants are always about. God pursuing man. So when he says, you're God and the God of your father, they must have thought, wow, this is the God of covenant. And they should have remembered the goodness of God. And he says, he's given you the, your treasure in your sacks. I had your money. He's saying, listen, I'm the steward. I had control of your money. It's, it's back there. It's a gift from your God. This is how we want you to see it. That your God's bless you. It's interesting because the, the word for treasure there literally means hidden treasure. And, and again, even that reminds us something about the goodness of God because when we talk about the goodness of God, we're talking about something that even we don't fully get yet. And what I mean by that is that when we talk about God's goodness, He is gooder, <laughs> He is better than we even imagine. We, we tend to underestimate the goodness of God. We know maybe intellectually, okay, if there's a God, He's supposed to be good. If He's not good, we're in big trouble, so we hope He's good. But we don't understand just how good He actually is. And let's be honest, isn't this where our faith usually fails? We've got no problem believing that God's all-powerful. Okay, if there's a God, He's got to be all-powerful. He made the universe, He's got to have power. But is He actually good? Yeah, He is. <laughs> he's better than you can even imagine. His goodness is, is it, it's beyond the depths that you've even seen yet. But he also brings Simeon back. Remember, Joseph had said, you leave a brother here and you bring your youngest brother back and then I'll release your brother to him. So what's happening? He's keeping his word. He's keeping his promise. Even that speaks to us about the goodness of God. 
Because God's goodness is always confirmed in His fulfilled promise. This is why we take this book so seriously. We take the book seriously because this book is full of promises that God has made to His people. And when we see that God has fulfilled His promise, and we see that God has done what He said He's going to do, we think, God, you're so good. You do what you say. You know, I've been aware recently of how often I don't do what I say. How quick I am to make promises. Yeah, Bubba, you and I, we'll go swimming on Thursday. Ah, oh, someone comes up. Ah, oh, i got to switch it, buddy. got to do a different day. That's okay, Dad. Honey, I'll, I'll help you with that. Okay, thanks. Phone call. Ring. Got to take the call. Can't help with that. How quick I make promises that either I'm unwilling or often just unable to fulfill. But you know what? God, El Shaddai, can do and will do every single thing he promised. That's his goodness. Joseph Stewart seemed to see this. Listen to this about the goodness of God. The Bible says in the book of James, James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. The psalmist says in Psalm 84.11, No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly with Him. I think one of the reasons we get into legalism, oh, don't, don't taste, don't touch, you know, what, how Paul describes it in the book of Colossians. We get into legalism because we don't believe God is good, so we don't enjoy the good things that God has for us. We feel guilty when we have a nice meal. Have you ever felt that experience? Man, this is so good. Man, people are starving everywhere. I don't really deserve it. Of course you don't. But where did it come from? The good hand of God. Give thanks. Fast for it once a week and give the money to somebody else, but give thanks. God's good. He doesn't withhold good things from us. That's why the psalmist says later on in Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Man, God, you are the epitome. You are the definition of good. And everything you do is good, so teach me how to follow you. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 34a, O taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Guys, listen. This is the second thing that we, we know God wants to do in our hearts. The first thing, remember, is God wants to teach us to surrender to the mercy of Almighty God. But the second thing is God wants to teach us to recognize that He's the source of all goodness. He's the source of all goodness. You know why he wants us to see that? Because, listen, life isn't always good. Most of you guys know that we got uh, burgled on uh, Friday night, Saturday morning. And they didn't take that much. Uh, They took a laptop that we were keeping for somebody else. They took Sarah's purse, my backpack. They basically dumped the contents of both, put the laptop in the bag, and probably took off with it. Uh, we recovered all our credit cards. The only thing really missing is the laptop, my backpack, and then my passports, which is a bit of a hassle to replace, but not that big of a deal. And, and the thing is, is that the biggest effect was uh, how much it upset my kids. I was sharing with some guys earlier th- this morning. It didn't bother me that much because I've seen so much worse. So I'm like, that's not that big a deal. We'll be fine. But they haven't. Praise God they haven't. 
So it was really upsetting them that someone came in, a stranger came in their house and took stuff. And rightly so. And it's easy when this kind of stuff happens to think, come on, God, what's the deal? Why do you allow that kind of stuff to happen? My kids are all freaked out. I had to waste three hours with the police. Very nice people. Got to ask, invite them to Easter service, but still. <laughs> I, it was like three hours. I don't know, three hours. It was mostly draining. The thing, it's easy to be tempted to say, God, what's the deal? But you know what the, what the deal is? God's still good. The theft of those people doesn't change the character of my God at all. And he's still in control. I can have a complete peace that God allowed that. I have no idea why yet. <laughs> but he allowed that. And in his goodness, he's going to work it together for good. Because he's the source of all goodness. Joseph's steward, I think, came to see this. And I, 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 have, to, I have to tell you, I'm convinced that he came to a real faith in the God of Joseph, in the God of, of the Hebrews, because he saw what God did through Joseph to save Egypt. Wow. This is a bad situation, this famine, but if your God is that powerful and that good, huh, people, should, you guys should trust him. Almost done. Verse 24. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house, and he gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed, then they made the present ready for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand uh, into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then they asked, then sorry, he asked them, Joseph asked them about their well-being and if your father's well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Now, you wouldn't see it in English, but listen, when it says they asked about their, Joseph asked about their well-being, he asked about their shalom, their peace. And he said, is your father well? Is your father experiencing shalom? The word's there again. And then he says, uh, then he says of the old man who he spoke, is he still alive? Now, this is interesting because Basically, they say to him uh, in verse 28, and they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health, is in shalom. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down, and they prostrated themselves. Now, I want you to look at what's going on here, okay? Joseph comes in and meets them. They've really got this present together. I can imagine them kind of like this nice big gift basket. You know, they're kind of arranging. The, oh, no, put the honey on top. That's really shiny. Okay, yeah, put those almonds over there. No, it should go pistachios, honey, and then almonds. You know, they're just kind of all getting it all nice. You know, trying to make it look as good as possible, as full as possible. And then when he comes in, they prostrate themselves. They put their heads to the ground. They bow down fully. Again, the picture that Joseph predicted, right? Of course, they don't know he's Joseph, but they did this. And they do this, and what's going on? They're bringing, listen, they're bringing this material gift. They're doing the formal bowing. And Joseph doesn't care about either of those things. All he cares about is, how's dad? How, how's your father? Is there shalom there? Are things as God intends them to be? That's what he wants to know. 
Now this is amazing because what it is is that he doesn't care about the he doesn't care about the material and, and why would he? Why, why do you if bringing a gift of food to the guy who's in charge of distributing food to all the known world there during a famine isn't going to be too impressed? Thanks for the nuts. Now I'll add them to the oatmeal because if you don't have oatmeal, you're going to die. You know this is more important. <laughs> and they're bowing down. You know like, uh, they're bowing down. It's, it's good. It fulfills. The prophecy, that, that, that the prophetic dream that Joseph had, but I can imagine Joseph might be thinking, but when are we going to be reconciled? When am I going to see my father? When can I show that I am your brother and we can be right again? Because who cares about formalism if it never leads to relationship? It says in verse 29, Then Joseph lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke of? And he said to him, God be gracious to you, my son. And now his heart yearned for his brother. It's the strongest you can, phrase you can get in Hebrew. He's just like, oh, want to just grab him. Hug him is this idea. So Joseph made haste and found, sought some place, somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. And then he washed his face and he came back and he restrained himself and he said, serve the bread. Do you see what's going on? He's, he's in this place, Joseph's in this place where he's longing to see these relationships restored. And it's interesting that when he says, God be gracious to you, the word gracious is a great word. Because the word gracious means in Hebrew, literally, listen, to be gracious means to stoop in kindness to an inferior. I'll say it again. It means to stoop in kindness to an inferior. It's the idea that there's somebody, listen, there's somebody who has way more power than you that you should bow down to, but instead he gets down to your level. Who does that sound like? Isn't that what Jesus did? God the Son, whom we should just all obey, whom we refuse and push aside. He became a man, humbled himself, became a man, got down to our level. That's grace. And Joseph is longing, listen, he's longing for God's grace. This, this, the fact that God would stoop down to our level, would meet us where we are, this God of covenant, that God would meet them where they are and bring them back together. He's longing for that reconciliation. And so he says, serve the bread, and in verse 32 it says, they set a place by him, they set him a place, set Joseph a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So you have to understand, the Egyptians were one of the first cultures that were very segregated. They, they, they actually thought that they descended from the gods, and that everyone else was just mere mortal, that they were less than they were. So to eat with them was a, was a disgusting thing. So picture the scene here. They, they, they set a place aside. So his servant set a place for Joseph to be in by himself, and then the Hebrew men to be by themselves, and then the Egyptians ate by themselves. So Joseph is really this, this, this prince, this prime minister of Egypt, in their eyes, is separated both from them and the Egyptians. Something unique about him. This is a hit at his identity. They must have thought, well, why wouldn't he eat with the servants? He's Egyptian, they're Egyptian. They might have thought, well, maybe because he's higher than them, I don't know. But there was a hint at his identity here. 
And then listen, it says in verse 33, and they sat before him, listen, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. They are set in birth order, oldest down to youngest, 11 kids, 11 men, sorry. Uh, oldest, youngest. And they're looking around going, how did that happen? Some mathematicians said that uh, if that was just chosen at random, it'd be like one in 20, a chance in one in 20 million or something to be able to get him in the exact right birth order. In other words, he knows something that they're thinking, how does he know this? He couldn't know this, possibly. Again, a hint at his identity. How does he know which one is which? And then in verse 23, it says, And they took servings, then he took servings, Joseph took servings to, to them before him. But notice, but Benjamin's servings, uh, serving was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they drank and were merry with him. So here's the situation, right? Who's Benjamin? The youngest brother. You give an extra portion to the eldest brother or the favored brother. But what's he doing? Giving it to the youngest brother. He's favoring the youngest. And not just one time over, five times over. Again, a hint at his identity. It's almost like, do you guys remember when you did this to me? <laughs> and they're just like, well, they're partying. They don't really notice what's going on. But the truth is, these things were all hints at him. And this is what's going on. You can see Joseph's longing to just want to say, it's me! Take it off the, the, the royal robe or whatever and say, it's me, it's just Joseph, your brother. He's longing for this. And guys, listen, this is the third and final thing that I want to bring out. When God is changing your heart, here's what happens. You begin to desire authentic relationship with God and with others. Full stop. This is what God the Spirit does. He teaches us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength authentically. God, I want to really love you as you are. I want to really love you. I want to just say I love you. And to love your neighbor as yourself. God, I want to love people as I was naturally take care of myself. This is what God does in us. At our Sunday night service, somebody asked a great, a great question a couple of weeks ago. They said, well, how do you know the Holy Spirit's working in you? Here's how you know. Love. Do you love God? Do you want to love Him more? Do you love God? your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love those who are lost? Do you love the things that God has said, the truth? If you are growing in love, if you're desiring authentic relationship, that's a good indication that God is changing your heart. Joseph is giving these hints, these evidences at what he's like. He, he wants them to, to, to sort of Maybe guess, know who he is. He's wanting to give evidence that he is who he is. In a sense, you might say he's building a case so that when he reveals himself, they're like, it really is Joseph. And you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus. Because you guys remember in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison? John the Baptist who said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist who told all his followers, when they're all looking to him, saying, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus, go follow Jesus. John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, he gets thrown in prison for making a moral stand. And what happens? He begins to wonder, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I got the wrong Messiah. 
And so we read it this way in, in Matthew chapter 11. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus said to them, go and tell John the things that you hear and see. Other Gospels tell us he did some of these things right before them. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus didn't say, well, tell John to stop doubting. What's wrong with him? He didn't do that. He didn't say, well, tell him to go back and read the Old Testament. He says, to, he says to John's disciples, John's friends, he goes, go back and tell them what you've witnessed. Tell them the evidence of my identity. I have authority over death and sickness. I have authority over demons and creation. Go back and tell them what you've seen. And blessed is he who's not tripped up because of me. Guys, listen. We look at this section in Genesis, we see Joseph longing, longing to be reconciled with his brothers. And you know what it reminds me of? We need to not underestimate how much God longs to be right with us. And that um, it blows me away because so often I'm not bothered. So often I want to do my own thing. And yet this great creator God who says the the immeasurable universe is the span of his hand, this great creator God, this, this God who became man in the person of Jesus, this great creator God, he says, John, I want to know you. I, I want you to draw close to me. I, don't you know that I sent Jesus so that you could have a relationship with me? Don't you know that he died so you could know me personally? I want to know you. I say, yeah, Lord, I, 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 I know that, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm seeing you the wrong way. Maybe, the, maybe those other guys are right. Maybe another religion is the better way. <laughs> and God says to us, listen, Jesus says to us, just like he said to John's disciples, look, look at the evidence. Look at all the hints at who I am. Who else could do what I did? Who else could predict his death and resurrection except for God incarnate?